morning, church. How are we feeling today? I hope you're doing well. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you a little bit more uh, unsettled. If you have seats next to you, if you could move to the middle, that would be very helpful to us. We have some people standing on the side. So if you have seats next to you, scooch over to the middle, and that would be a huge benefit to us. Thank you so much. Good to have you here this morning. My name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor of Pinion Hills Community Church. There is a kid by the name of Michael Jr., Michael Jr. grew up in the city of Atlanta, Georgia. He was uh, the middle kid in a family of five. He had an older sister and a younger brother. He was also a PK, which means he was a pastor's kid, uh, which meant he was always good all the time. That's what pastor's kids are. <laughs> and uh, his father would get up, and he was the, the senior pastor of a local church in Atlanta. And every Sunday, Michael Jr. and his siblings would come, and they would hear the word of God every single weekend from their dad, who was the pastor. Well, this little kid, Michael Jr., he grew up with a, a kid who was his best buddy in his neighborhood. He would do life with this kid. They would fight together. They would play together. They would race each other. They would run with each other. They, they just hung out all the time, and they were the best of friends growing up as kids in Atlanta, Georgia. When Michael Jr. turned six years old, he found out he got to go to school. He was finally old enough to go to school himself, so he was really excited to go to school, but then he got the bad news. The bad news is that he wasn't going to be attending school at the same school where his best friend was going to attend. Well, this didn't sit well with Michael Jr. He's like, why can't I go to the same school as my best friend? And, and, and people said, well, your best friend, he's got to go to this school. And Michael, you got to go to this school. It's just the way it is. But Michael Jr. kept saying, well, why? Why is that the way it is? Why can't I go to the same school? We live in the same neighborhood. We've been friends for years. We're, we're buddies. He lives a few houses down from us. Why can't we go to the same school? And then the truth came out. They told Michael Jr., they said, the real reason is because your best friend, he's white. And Michael, you're black. You can't go to the same school because the blacks don't go to the white schools and, and the whites don't go to the black schools. And it's just the way it is, Michael didn't sit well with Michael Jr. It bugged him to his inner core. He hated the fact that he couldn't go to school with his best friend who he had known for years. Meanwhile, his father, the preacher, Michael Sr., started doing a worldwide tour, started going around different countries and learning more about God and God's word and the scripture and how the Christian church began. And, and Michael Sr. finds himself in Berlin. And at one point, he's studying Christianity in Berlin. And he starts learning all about the Protestant Reformation. Back in the 1500s, there was a, a gentleman who, who stood up and said, you know what, I don't necessarily believe in all the teachings that the Roman Catholic Church teaches. So this gentleman, he says, I, I think that there's things that they've got wrong in Scripture. For example, the Roman Catholic Church said nobody's allowed to read the Word of God except for the priests. In fact, the Bible wasn't even translated into English in the 1500s. And so this gentleman, he stood up and said, there's, there's things that I think that, that, that people, if they, if they had access to God's Word, that they would learn from them, for themselves. And so the Protestant Reformation began, and this gentleman, he said, there's, there's 95 different things that I want to bring towards the Roman Catholic Church. So he took these 95 theses and nailed them to the door of the Catholic Church in Berlin. Well, hundreds of years later, Michael Sr. learns all about this. He figures out and, and learns how the, the Protestant Church began, how Christianity outside of the Roman Catholic Church continued to move forward. And he was so moved by this individual who had done this in the 1500s that Michael Sr. came back to Atlanta, Georgia, and when he came back and returned to his hometown in the United States, he decided to change his name. He didn't want to be known as Michael Sr. anymore. He changed his name to, the, to that of the Christian reformer. He changed his name to Martin Luther. 
Martin Luther Sr., then decided to change his first son's name as well and decided his son would no longer be known as Michael Jr. His son would be Martin Luther Jr. In fact, I have a picture of the birth certificate of Martin Luther Jr. You can see up towards the very top part, his original name, Michael King Jr., was changed, literally scratched out with a pen, and his name was officially changed to Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr., he didn't like the fact that he couldn't go to the same school as his white friend. Best friends, but they can't go to the same school together. He started going to the high school, but he was too smart for the ninth grade, so he skipped the ninth grade. Martin Luther King Jr. skipped the ninth grade, then he skipped the twelfth grade. He started college at the age of 15 years old, graduated from college, and then a few years after that became the, the leader of the civil rights movement. It still bothered him that he wasn't allowed to go to school the same place as his white friend. And so he wanted to do everything he could to bring people together and create unity within our community. A couple weeks ago, we started a new series here at Pinion Hills Community Church. And it's all about the seven core values that we hold near and dear in this church. Those seven core values are God, God's word, all people, the church, community, discipleship, and service. Those are the things that we are most all about here, the things that are most precious to us. Two weeks ago, I came out and I started talking about why do we value God and his word? Why do we value scripture? Why do we value the Bible? If you missed that sermon, go back and watch it in the replays at phcc.church. Last week, we talked about the third and fourth core values of this church. We talked about why do we value all people? Why do we love everybody? Why do we value the church? Not the small C church, the big C church, the kingdom of God. Why do we value the bride of Christ? Why do we find importance in that? Last week I told the story of the Good Samaritan. Perhaps you've heard that story before. There was a Jewish man who was on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets beat up by a bunch of robbers. A priest is on the same road. He sees the man bleeding on the side of the road, but he's probably too concerned about his own safety, so he doesn't stop to help the man. A priest doesn't stop to help him. A Levite on the same road sees the man bleeding, doesn't stop to help him. Then the Samaritan stops. And he sees this guy bleeding, a Jewish man on the side of the road, bleeding, perhaps dying from being beaten up. And the Samaritan of all people is the one that stops. Now, the significance of that story is that the Samaritans hated the Jews and the Jews hated the Samaritans. Of all people to stop, it shouldn't have been the Samaritan. Martin Luther King Jr., as an adult, followed in his father's footsteps, and he too became a preacher. He became Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And he preached that exact same story of the Good Samaritan. And here's a quote from Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermon when he preached on it. He said this regarding the Good Samaritan. He said, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the Good Samaritan reversed the question and said, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? See, the point that Martin Luther King Jr. was making is that others should be a higher priority than even ourselves. He was saying we should love others even if it means costing us something. And he continued to push that. He continued to try to bring people together, bringing other people together. And he wanted his life to be all about, instead of finding excuses to bring people apart, he wanted to find excuses to bring people together, to have unity, to have community, which is our fifth core value at this church, community. Our value of community didn't come from us. It didn't even come from Martin Luther King Jr. It came from God in the beginning. 
the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the plants. He created the animals. He created the stars. He created everything. And then in the pinnacle of his creation, he created life from the dust of the ground. He created Adam. He created mankind. He breathed life into Adam. And right after he made Adam, in Genesis 2.18, God said this. He said, it is not good for man to be alone. So he put Adam into a deep sleep. He took a rib from Adam. He created woman out of the man. And this is the first time that we see in Scripture, the first time we see in, in the beginning of the Bible, that it's God's idea that we are not supposed to do life alone. If you're taking notes in your program this morning, you can write that in. We are not designed to do life alone. God never intended that, never expected that we would do life isolated and alone. Now, some of you I know would fight me. Because there's two main groups of people out there. There's the extroverts and there's the introverts. In fact, let me ask this. Where are all my extroverts this morning? Give me a loud cheer and a, like, you know, you know, raise your hand. Give me a, a, a loud round of applause or something. Yeah, there you are. Okay. Now, I'm not going to ask where my introverts are because it would be crickets. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> there, there's, there's one. So the main difference between extroverts and introverts, the extroverts, they, they love Doing life with other people, it, it empowers you. Your batteries are recharged. You show up early to church. You're the last ones to leave. You get out of here at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon because you're still hanging out in the cafe. That's just how you're wired. Meanwhile, the introverts, introverts don't hate people. It's just that their batteries are being depleted. For those of you who are introverts right now, your batteries are being depleted right now. You're like looking at the clock. Well, how much longer do I have to be in church around these people? Because it's draining. It's exhausting. You're going to go home and, and watch the game or perhaps watch Netflix as soon as you get home because that's how introverts work. That's how the, the introverts are recharged. Now, there's no, nothing right or wrong about extroverts or introverts. That's just how God has wired you. But the introverts may be some of the people that are like, well, I can do life alone. I don't need to do life with other people. I'm good. I, I could just go set up in a cabin somewhere and watch fish in the stream and the elk come by and the geese fly by, and I'm good. And I know a lot of you are like, I could do that right now. Like, I could go there to a cabin in the woods somewhere right now. And even though that might be how you recharge, we're still not designed to do life isolated and alone. Just because your personality might be such that, that you are, are engaged or your batteries are recharged with people or or the opposite of that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do life with, uh, without other people. In fact, one of the worst punishments that you can get should you go to prison, one of the worst punishments you can get is solitary confinement. They, they remove you from everybody having any connection with any human or, or, or person in the world, and you are stuck, and that's a punishment for people because we weren't intended or designed to do life alone. I don't know if you're doing life alone, but, but that's not the way it was intended to be. God never expected that from the very beginning, from Genesis 2 forward. Solomon, one of the wisest men of all time, he, he talked about this and he spoke about this in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, here's what Solomon says, verse 8. He says, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. The man asked, for whom am I toiling and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? And Solomon says, this too is meaningless. It's a miserable business. Here's this guy, he's living all alone. He's not doing life with anybody. He's got a business. He's making money. He's doing well, but he's miserable. Why is he miserable? Because he has nobody to do life with. He's all alone. And Solomon, the wisest person of all time, says, that's meaningless. You're working for nothing. You have nobody to do life with. 
Solomon continues on in verse 9. He says, two are better than one. And I think this is especially true, especially when it comes to Oreos. I don't know if you've heard this, but Oreo released a new flavor. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm an Oreo freak. I kid you not. I have a, a, a bag of Oreos in a glass case backstage in my office right now. It says, in case of emergency, break glass. I've never broken it, but it's there in case I need it. Two are better than, it's not talking about Oreos, but whatever. Two are better than one. He's talking about people, not Oreos. I digress. <laughs> Solomon says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Now, oftentimes, if you go to a wedding, you'll hear a, a pastor get up and he'll, he'll say, you know, the bride and the groom together, and two are better than one. They'll read Ecclesiastes 4 9, and it's beautiful, and it's poetic, and it's romantic, and the husband and wife, they kiss each other in marriage. It's just a nice, beautiful ceremony, right? That's my, that's my rendition of a, a supposed pastor's <laughs> ceremonies at weddings. But I don't think Solomon ever intended for that verse to be for marriages. Now, it can be applicable. It can apply to a husband and a wife, but, but he's not talking about marriage. And we find out here as we continue on, verse 10, Solomon says this. He says, if either of them falls down, one can help the other one up. But pity anyone who falls who has nobody to help them up. Also, if two lie down, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And then verse 12, here's why I think Solomon wasn't talking about marriage in this particular passage of Scripture. He said, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I don't think Solomon's encouraging you to have two wives, to have a cord of three strands. Well, Solomon said. <laughs> I don't think he's encouraging you to have two husbands, which is why I don't believe this is referring to marriage. It's referring to life with people. Friends, here's the reality. I would rather that you have two or three godly, close, real friends than two or three thousand acquaintances. I would rather you have two or three solid, good friends than two or three million followers on Facebook or on Instagram. We are designed to do life together with each other. That's what God intended. He never intended us for us, us to be alone or isolated. In fact, author Lisa Turker, she said this. You can write, write this down in your notes if you're taking them. She said, if the enemy can isolate you, he can influence you. If the enemy can isolate you, he can influence you. Many of you know that my wife was a former zookeeper. When I became a pastor about 10 years ago, she became a zookeeper at the Albuquerque Biopark. And, and she took care of all sorts of different animals. She started off doing the bird show. She, she would come out and there would be all these macaws and, and, and all these eagles and stuff lying around. She had the big microphone that looked like Britney Spears in a concert or something. She'd be like, hey, what's up, Albuquerque? And all these birds would be flying in, perching on her arm. And she, she would lead everybody in this, this show. It was a really cool show. She also took care of a lot of the other animals. She took care of, like, the kangaroos. She helped with that. I have a picture of her kissing a kangaroo. Not that I'm jealous or anything. It's, it's all good. Whatever. Lucky kangaroo. <laughs> she took care of other animals. She helped with the sea lions. She helped with all sorts of different monkeys and stuff. But her, her, main, her main focus, her heart was with the great apes. And her main job as a zookeeper at the Albuquerque Biopark was to take care of the, the chimps, the orangutans, and the gorillas. Now, unlike the kangaroo, you saw a picture of her kissing a kangaroo, she would never get into an enclosure ever with a great ape. And the reason why is because those great apes are incredibly strong. A, a gorilla, a silverback gorilla, for example, he could take your leg and break your femur with his hands. Super incredibly strong. These, these animals are three or 400 pounds each. They're incredibly strong, and they're incredibly intelligent. These gorillas, I'm convinced... They know they're in captivity. 
And sometimes it's better that they're in captivity because they grew up in a circus or something. They've been abused in the past. So if they were to be released in the wild, it's not good for their health. But they know. They know they're in captivity. And they're intelligent enough to know that the, the doors to their freedom, on the other side of the door, there's a lock. And if they can undo that lock, they can open up the door and have freedom. They're intelligent enough to know that the zookeepers are the ones that have the keys to those locks. So my wife, being a zookeeper, it was her job to take care of the gorillas. She would take care of them. She would go and clean out all the trash from the, the yard, which is the public area where you see all the gorillas in the zoo. That's like the yard that's the public side. And so when the gorillas weren't in there, the zookeepers would go and they'd collect all the trash. They'd collect all the coins, which I don't know why people throw coins at gorillas like they're a wishing well or something. Please don't do that. Did you know if, if, a, if a gorilla picks up a penny and swallows it, it's going to kill it? Like it can't get through its system, so it's going to die. Don't throw money at gorillas. I don't know why people do that. Anyway, so the zookeepers come in. They clean all the money out, all the trash out. They get all that stuff out while the gorillas are, are, are locked away on the inside of the building. But there's a, a door that's called the shift door. And when the, the zookeepers are on the outside cleaning the yard, that door is closed because they're shifted inside. But then when it's time for those gorillas to come outside, they open up the shift door and they shift the animals from the inside to the outside. So all the gorillas come outside. Now they're in the, the public view. Now everybody can throw their coins and stuff at them. But then they close the shift door. And that's when the zookeepers go and clean on the inside of the enclosure. Well, they would never be in the same place at the same time. Because I'm convinced that these gorillas, if they're around a zookeeper, they would, they would attack a zookeeper. They would perhaps kill a zookeeper if, if they were in the same place at the same time. One day, my wife gets to work, and she shows up, and she shifts all the gorillas from the inside to the outside. She closes the shift door. They're all on the outside in the public view. And with the door closed, my wife goes into the enclosure to start cleaning up and putting out food and hay for the animals for when they get shifted back in later. Meanwhile, another zookeeper comes in. And doesn't realize Ashton's on the, the other side. And the zookeeper comes over and she decides to shift the animals back in. So she raises the gate with my wife on the other side. And, and right on the other side of that shift gate was the silverback gorilla. The strongest of all the gorillas. The, the alpha dominant male that would probably break somebody's arms or legs or whatever. Right on the other side. There's some other zookeepers that were around that witnessed this, and they were like, close the door, close the door, Ashton's in there, close the door. So she quickly closes the door right when the silverback is turning around. And had he been facing the, the gate, had his back not been turned towards the gate, I am convinced that he would have gotten through that gate, and I'm convinced that my wife would not be here today. When we are isolated in the context of a, a wild animal like that, it could be potentially devastating. I don't know if angels were watching over my wife that day. I don't know if she was just blessed or lucky. I don't know. But I know that there's some zookeepers that their story doesn't turn out that way. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, you perhaps saw it on the news. There's an intern zookeeper in North Carolina that somehow find her, found herself on the inside of a lion's enclosure and couldn't get out in time. And the lion got her and mauled her and killed her. They also couldn't, couldn't get the lion away from, from the body, so they had to kill the lion. The enemy wants to do everything he can to isolate you, to destroy you. 1 Peter 5.8 says this. It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's looking to take you out. Your enemy, he wants to isolate you. He wants to get you alone because if he could get you alone, he knows he can take you down. 
So how do we respond to that? Verse 9 in 1 Peter 5 says, Resist the enemy, stand firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. How do we resist the enemy who wants to isolate you? We stand firm with the family of believers. We are better together. We are stronger together with the family of believers and community around us. A couple years ago, my wife and I, we took a, a trip up the 101. We lived in San Diego. So we jump on the Pacific Coast Highway and we take it all the way north. You could go all the way up to Canada if you want to. If you've never done this trip, I would encourage you to put it on your bucket. Let's do this before the day you die. Take the 101 all the way up the coast. When we were going, we would make this a, an annual tradition. We go every summer. And when we were going up the, the last time, we didn't have our kids with us. We're, we're going up. We go up through Big Sur, which is this beautiful area. There's cliffs that go down into the ocean. At one point, there's a McWay waterfall. The waterfall flows right into the ocean. It's a beautiful scene. If you keep going north to Monterey, you'll see sea lions and otters. You'll see whales out in the wild in the ocean. If you keep going north from there, it's San Francisco. And if you go across the Golden Gate Bridge, you enter into what's called the Muir Woods National Park. And the Muir Woods, what's fascinating about the Muir Woods is that it, it consists of redwood groves, redwood trees. And these trees are massive trees. They grow two or 300 feet up in the air. That's like a 20 or 30-story building, massive trees. And if you were to go, if you were to go down there, I would encourage you to get there early because we got there a little bit later in the afternoon and there's hundreds and hundreds of people in, in traffic just to get to the Muir Woods. So go early. Don't go right now because it's shut down because the government shut down, so nobody's there right now. But when the government, perhaps if it ever does open back up, go to the Muir Woods and drive down there. And when you get there, you could see these massive trees. In fact, I have a picture of somebody that's hugging. She must be a tree hugger. She's trugging, hugging a tree. Check out how big that tree is. That is a massive tree. That's just the base of the tree. It goes up hundreds of feet from there. Now, if you ever do go over to the Muir Woods or perhaps in Oregon where there's redwood groves as well, perhaps the same thought would cross your mind that's crossed mine. With a tree that's two or 300 feet tall, you would make the assumption, or at least I do, that with such a tall tree, the roots would go just as deep, two or 300 deep, feet deep. But that's the fascinating thing with, with redwood trees. Their roots only go five feet. Isn't that crazy? A, a massive two or 300 foot tree, the roots only go five feet down. Now, now, how in the world does it not fall over when the wind comes, when the rain comes, when the flooding comes? The reason why is because they go down five feet and then they go out from there. And they spread out perhaps hundreds of feet to the sideways, sideways horizontally. And here's what happens when you have all these redwood trees. Their roots, as they're going sideways, they come to each other. And when they meet each other, they fuse together. And when you have all these different trees... They become stronger when they're unified, when they're literally joined together, which is why you would never see an isolated redwood tree on its own. They're always found in groves. Same thing for aspen trees. They're found in groves. What a beautiful picture that is of what community is supposed to look like. That we can join together and that we would be better together. We would be stronger joining together. But that's not what the enemy wants for us. What the enemy wants is for you to be isolated on your own so you don't have strength in numbers. Your enemy wants you to be over here on your own. He, he wants to get you alone so he can do whatever he can to take you down. He doesn't want you to be successful, so he doesn't want you joining hands with other people. He wants you to be isolated and alone so he can influence you or perhaps even destroy you. Community is the opposite of what our enemy wants for us. Now, I could, I could perhaps ask a question right now that would be very divisive. In fact, I will ask a question, but I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. 
Suppose I asked you to raise your hand and say, hey, whoever is in support of building a wall between Mexico and the United States, raise your hand. Now, I'm not asking you to raise your hand. <laughs> but perhaps hundreds of hands would go up in the air. And then I could flip the question and be like, who's in favor of not building a wall between Mexico and the United States? And hundreds more hands would go up. And the reason I'm not asking you to raise your hands right now is because people would see hands go up and then people would get out of their chairs and be like, you're wrong, sucker. I'll meet you in the parking lot. We're going to throw down. You're my enemy. I don't want to riot. I don't want to brawl. I mean, that would be fun to watch, like UFC style, I guess. But, <laughs> but I can't ask certain questions because it creates division. And while, while some people can say, hey, we can agree to disagree or we see things differently and that's okay, some people say, no, you're my enemy because you see things differently. I could ask for a raise of hands, which I'm not going to do, but I could say, hey, who's in favor of the government shutdown? Hundreds of hands would go up. Then I could ask the opposite question. Who thinks that the government shutdown should stop and cease and people should be allowed to go back to work? Hundreds of hands would go up and people would be divided once again. I can ask questions that create division, but some people don't, don't handle the fact that we can see things differently. We have different opinions. You see, friends, I believe that we can not agree on 100% of the issues in the world, but still join hands together and be stronger and better together, even though we're not in 100% agreement with everything. I believe that we can join hands to be, to be together and stronger, unified, even if we have a different color of skin. I believe that we can be joined together even if we have a different cultural background. Even if you and I speak a different language, we can be joined together and be stronger together. We can be more unified. Now the question is, how? When we see things differently, we may have a different background, we have a different culture that we come from. How could we join hands together? Well, I'll tell you how. Paul answered this question when he wrote a letter to the church of Corinth. He said this in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, uh, verse 1. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give my body over to hardship that I may boast but I do not have love, I gain nothing. What can we use to join us together and fuse us together for community? Love. We may not see eye to eye on every issue in the world, but we can be in agreement and we can love one another. And that can be what joins us and fuses us together. This is such an important concept to, to Paul that he sent this out in letter after letter after letter to different communities. In fact, I don't know how much you know about the Bible, but the Bible has two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament, 13 books of the New Testament were written and authored by Paul, who I believe is the greatest missionary of all time. Of those 13 books, nine of those were written to specific communities. In fact, the books uh, that we see in the Bible, he wrote to the Romans, the, the, the community of, with the Romans, the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians. These are all different churches, communities that he's writing to. He's trying to get across to the point that we can do life together. We don't have to be divided. We can be joined. We can be unified. He says this to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. He's not blood brothers and sisters with these people. He's saying you're part of the same family of believers. I appeal to you. I ask of you. I beg of you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what unifies us. In the name of Jesus, I appeal to you that you agree with one another in what you say and that there's no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. Now let me clarify something really quickly. When Paul says that we need to be perfectly united in mind and thought, doesn't mean we have to agree on every single issue out there. We just need to be like-minded, which is why 1 Peter 3.8 says this. He says, all of you be like 
like-minded and sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted and humble. We just need to be like-minded for us to get along. We just need to be like-minded for us to be in the same community with one another. You may not like the loudness of the music here at Pinion Hills Community Church, but we can still be like-minded. You may not like the style of music that our worship band leads in every Sunday, but we can still be like-minded. You may not like me as a preacher. You can leave. kidding (laughs) we can still be like-minded you may not like the chairs that you're sitting on maybe they're too squishy maybe you don't like the color of blue maybe you don't like the color of the carpet maybe you don't like the lights maybe you don't like the size of the building maybe you don't like the food in the cafe we can still be like-minded you could be convinced that the patriots are going to win over the chiefs today and you'd be right We can be like-minded in some things and disagree on others and still be family and still be community. And that begs the question, well, what do we need to be like-minded about? We could disagree in this and this and this and all these different things. What do we need to be like-minded about? What do we need to be on the same page with? Well, Paul answers that question to the, the church, the Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, Paul says this. He says, let us hold resolutely to the hope we profess. Let's hold on to the hope. We could disagree on that. We could disagree on this. We could disagree on this. But let's hold on to this one thing, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's hold on to that together. He continues on, verse 23. Let us hold resolutely to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us, verse 24, let us consider how to spur one another on to love and to good deeds. Let us not neglect meeting together as some of us have made a habit, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What what Paul just went through is basically a four-step process to building healthy community. Here's how you build healthy community. You do these things. Let's break it down really quickly. Verse 23 says, let's hold resolutely to the hope that we profess in Jesus. We could disagree on a thousand different things, but let's, let's hold on to that. Let's be on the same page when it comes to Jesus Christ. We have hope in an eternity with him. Jesus says, I'm going to my father's house. I'm preparing a room for you. I have hope in that. We can have hope in that. We might 